From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Have you ever met someone so passionate about something that you just couldn't help getting excited about whatever they were excited about, too? That was my experience when I first met Father Tom Curran, SJ, who's my guest today. Father Curran, who served as the president of Rockhurst University in Kansas City for 16 years, is now the coordinator of the Jesuit Prison Education Network, or JPEN. Through participation in JPEN, nine different Jesuit institutes of higher learning offer college courses and degree programs taught by the university and college professors at correctional facilities around the U.S. The programs are open to both those who are incarcerated and prison staff members, and Father Curran has some incredible stories about how the programs have changed the students' and teachers' lives and even the cultures of the correctional facilities themselves. In our conversation, Father Curran described some of the ways our criminal justice system is dehumanizing and how prison education is a prophetic statement against that reality. He also talked about how Ignatian spirituality inspires his work and shared some of the most powerful stories from the JPEN programs. If Father Curran is even half as inspiring to you as he is to me, you can sign up to receive JPEN's email newsletters by clicking the link I'll put in the show notes. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Father Tom Curran, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Look forward to the conversation. Yeah, I had a chance to meet with you and some people who work in the Jesuit world in communications and fundraising. Uh, not too long ago out in Denver, and you came and talked to our group about your work in prison education. And really in the middle of your talk, I thought to myself, I'll have to ask Tom on the podcast to, to let him kind of share some of these stories, which were so powerful and to me really represented this kind of frontier in Jesuit education. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm excited to, to ask you a little bit about it. And so maybe we could start just, you know, you've had a career in college administration and done all kinds of things, I'm sure. But what for you, do you remember how you developed such a, an interest in prison education? Where did that spark come from? Was there an experience you had early on? Was it meeting people who were incarcerated? What, yeah, what was the, what kind of set you on this path? I don't think there's any one incident uh, as opposed to an evolution of uh, understanding and call, if you will. So not unlike a, a vocation, right? So a vocation is not just a one-time call, but it's on time, ongoing. For me, uh, life in, in, in education, also uh, trained as an attorney as well. And so spend time uh, in defense work and, and spend a little bit of time as a, as a public defender. Uh, in the public defender's office, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, so that those all of those things in one's life uh, bring along an opportunity that kind of it's the convergence of many things. So while I was um, all kind of came together when I was on staff at Rockhurst University in Kansas City, Missouri, and I had this, this tagline about the school from the beginning of my time of the sixteen years there was, we need to be in the city for good. Uh, play on words uh, for both longevity as well as the good we are to be about. And, and our Jesuit understanding, right? What is the greater good? Right? Uh, how do we pursue the majus? 
Um, we had uh, a center for financial prosperity there, which was helping people uh, address the issues of bankruptcy, wealth stripping in an area that uh, was prevalent with uh, uh, payday loans and cash advance places. And so the university uh, is the only school, uh, only college campus in the country that has such a center to deal with such issues. Uh, also, while I was there at the time, I, I taught the course in Catholic social teaching every year and was also very concerned about our mass incarceration. Uh, we warehouse people, right? Um, our country has 5% of the world's population, but we're at 25% of the world's incarcerated. So the 8 million people incarcerated worldwide, one out of four is found in the United States prisons. And, and I always looked for how could we possibly uh, get involved with something. Uh, so it was approached by Ken Parker uh, at the suggestion of Father Larry Biondi, who at that time was president of St. Louis University, because St. Louis University had started at PEP, a prison, in prison education program at Bonterre Correctional Facility, a men's facility. There are 21 correctional facilities in Missouri, 19 are for men, two are for women. We were approached, uh, I more specifically was approached back in 2015, about would we consider uh, adopting Chillicothe, which is a women's correctional facility in Missouri, just maybe about two hours from Kansas City. And so went through a process of really discerning with the university community, is that something to which we're being called to? And I was very buoyed and just inspired by the uh, feedback um, and the support from the university there, a faculty staff saying, yes, we should be about this. And so off we went into something that I, I said then and now, what can we do that's modest, achievable, and sustainable? Uh, and that mantra of being modest, achievable, and sustainable wound up into a program known as Companions in Chillicothe. Very intentional about that word, companions, compañeros, right? uh, very much rooted in our Ignatian tradition. And so we began a program for women and the staff there at Correctional Facility in Chillicothe, Missouri, and the town that is referred to it as the best thing since sliced bread, because that's where the bread making machine first was brought some almost 100 years ago. So since that time, we have offered one course at a time in a semester of nine credit hours a year. And next uh, winter, next summer, uh, fall, uh, the first cohort of women and staff will receive their Associate of Arts degree uh, from, from Rockhurst. Uh, some of those, those women uh, who are incarcerated will never be released. They are serving life sentences. Uh, and we're asked, oh, why do that? You know, it'd be great to, it's good that you're doing this, but just do it for those who are going to get out and make a contribution. But I don't, I don't agree with that because it's, it's not a matter of just a degree being for its utilitarian purposes but rather education is transformative. It's very much a part of how we roll, if you will, our way of proceeding as a Jesuit uh, entity, right, in the enterprise of higher education. So some of those women who will not be released actually will wind up being uh, teaching assistants in the program. Hmm. But, but, but more fundamentally, uh, I would say that it's, it's, a, uh, it's an invitation to our shared humanity. I hear frequently, gosh, what you're doing there is, is great, what you're doing for. Like, no, it's what we're doing with, right? Because in every one of these situations, students, faculty, staff, uh, institution itself, we're being transformed by this. 
into this invitation to our shared humanity. Um, I hear repeatedly uh, from uh, the women there, the staff there, and now at the other institutions, there are nine Jesuit schools, nine Jesuit colleges and universities that we formed in this group called JPEN, Jesuit Prison Education Network. Uh, and, and the re recurring refrain is, I feel human. Hmm. I feel human again. My humanity has been restored. And to me, that that's really the, the whole root of this, right? Is that uh, it is uh, a, a companionship in our shared humanity uh, where we recognize that we uh, need one another. I in no way diminish uh, the crimes, uh, the, in some cases very heinous crimes, that um, these men and women have committed. But in our sessions, we're about being students and teachers and staff together, uh, and we have homework to do. And, and in the process of that education, uh, I believe we're transforming lives. I'm being transformed. Everybody that's been involved with this has said it's, it's transformative. So I think it's a great opportunity for us, but it's not something new. Uh, if you look at, at our whole history of the Society of Jesus, Ignatius Loyola spent some time in prison. Now, of course, he was in prison because uh, he, was, they were, he was accused of teaching heresy. He was not educated appropriately, did not have the sufficient degrees. And because of that, uh, he kept finding himself being tossed into jail uh, for this uh, alleged heresy. Uh, and he always found out that he wasn't. But he came to this realization, this is going to keep happening to me until I get the credentials, until I get a degree. <laughs> so I, in many respects, he shows the example of you come to that that realization right that uh that moment of clarity that he came to along the cardinal river well i think there was another moment of clarity in the prison hmm. <laughs> that an education is is essential uh and and that's that's just kind of this recurring connection this trajectory that, that connects all of these uh ex experiences there so uh, i'll stop there because i've probably given a lot more to yeah. the initial question no, there, I, gave. so many follow-ups i have i'll start with sure, this one please. i'll start with one that so you mentioned the refrain from folks who are incarcerated who take your courses that they feel human again which yes. again so kind of underlines the fact that before that experience maybe they were not feeling that human dehumanized um that they're involved in a system where they don't feel like their dignity is respected and i know we we, we hear about you know, the kind of prison system and criminal justice system today, some, but from your experience, um, can you talk a little bit about the the state of the prison system yes, in, in the yeah. U.S. now and why is it that folks are, are there and feeling uh, less than human? Yeah, I, I, it is dehumanizing because we're not, we, we say we're about rehabilitation, uh, but in my estimation and in the estimation of many, we're not about rehabilitation. We're about warehousing, uh, uh, warehousing uh, segments of our humanity uh, because we don't know how to rehabilitate. And we have standards by which we establish re uh, rehabilitation. Today, if someone is released from prison and they desist in committing a crime for three years, we consider that time of incarceration successful. Pretty low threshold for us to have that. However, I recognize that when we go into the prisons to teach, um, there are two industries that are coming together. We're about the business of education. 
the, the facilities are about the business of security. And, and we have to partner together, and we have been able to partner together uh, in, in all of these institutions where the correctional facility sees that this does transform the institution, especially when we're teaching both those who are incarcerated as well as those who are on staff. And, and how do we uh, partner in that? I think there's lots of things. For instance, when we started at Chillicothe in Missouri, uh, the, the terms they use, right? Uh, you're called inmates or offenders or incarcerated, and the, cha- the term changes over a period of time. I was insistent from day one that we did not use such terms, but rather we say our students. And, and, and we agreed to that. They say, okay, our students. And so we want to further uh, distinguish. We say, okay, we have our residential students and our commuter students, if you will. Um, and, and to further uh, to support, to reinforce this notion of being students, I requested that they be able to wear a T-shirt from the college. And we did. We have a whole brand, and they do. They wear that those T-shirts to class, and 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 therein presents opportunities for us to hear repeatedly. You don't know how important this T-shirt is to me. Much like when we started school, right? We had to wear a school uniform. It helps you get into the mentality of being. I'm a student. <laughs> well, when you put on that T-shirt, you come in, and you're wearing that that Rockers University or St. Louis University or Loyola University of New Orleans T-shirt. I'm a student of Loyola, and I'm part of this network of, of Jesuit education. And uh, it's a real sense of, of belonging, uh, a sense of commitment, uh, and it is an, an expression of, of dignity. To have a student say, this shirt is so important to me, I, I don't put it in the dryer for fear that I, <laughs> uh, this is one of my most precious possessions. It's also significant because when you give something like that in many of these facilities, you give a book, you give a, a piece of clothing, something has to come out of their inventory because every piece of clothing they have and every book, everything like that is inventoried. So when those students wear those T-shirts, they are, I guess, in some respects, billboards for the, for the school, but they're also uh, T-shirts that extend an invitation to their other um, companions what's going on in that class and the number of times they talk about going back and sharing with folks what's going on in that class whether it was a, a philosophy class or an english class or a human geography class or or an art class or a bio biology class it, it's having this ripple effect or this leaven that's really impacting and it's and it's and it's connecting uh the this the inside students if you will uh who are whether whether they're part of St. Louis University or Scranton or John Carroll or Georgetown or any one of the nine, uh, they they are uh, having an impact on one another because the relationship between the staff and and well the, among these students is we have a common focus here. We have homework that's due. Sure. And I, just so to clarify, as I'm, I'm just uh, make sure folks understand when you're saying the residential students and commuter students that you're offering courses as well to, to the staff who staff. are taking the same that's the correct. same courses, just in separate cohorts. They, Can they you just take, talk a little bit more about correct. that? Yes. Yeah, so they take the same class, but at, at, uh, in a different cohort. So for example, uh, the, the residential students would take the class, you know, once a week from for two and a half hours in the morning, and then the uh, staff would be 
in the afternoon, or in some cases, in some of the facilities, the staff is doing that virtually because it allows greater flexibility for them with their families and to pursue a degree uh, and, and, and to increase their uh, employment opportunities in the facility. But I've heard prison officials say to me, I had real challenges with this person or that person. And now we become companions in, in that we have a we have a homework assignment that's due and we need one another to assess. Uh, those things happen all the time in schools, right? Well, they're happening in these campuses and in these correctional facilities. Uh, and again, not in any way to say, well, we should focus upon the crime. We should focus upon the wrongdoing. I'm focusing upon education and education being transforming. And, 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 and really kind of reducing the temperature, uh, changing the way we see one another, uh, and, and a common purpose, right? Uh, and, and giving someone this, this, it's not, I should not, I do not want this to be thought of as a giveaway as much as an opportunity for us in the institutions, both the correctional as well as the academic, to see our shared humanity. Hmm. We're in this together. Okay? I, Oh, no, I was just going to ask, you mentioned, again, the transformational effect on the, the places and the students. And I'm curious about mm -hmm. for yourself, do you remember some of your early experiences uh, teaching? I know you can't, it's hard to paint with a broad brush, uh, but sure, what are some of the, sure. the tr uh, trends you see in the, the residential students, those who are incarcerated? Um, what type of students are they? Uh, just talk a little bit about your own experience as a teacher sure. um, in those settings and, and how it had an impact on you. So I remember when we first started and had that uh, application pool and then selected students and, and then welcomed them and spoke of them as being companions on this journey. And they really understood that language and really embraced that language. There was fear and trepidation because some had not been in school for 15, 20, 30 years. Um, and so first there was this, this confidence building. Uh, can I do this? Yes, you can. And I, I think of that early on. Uh, and, and compared with just recently, I was visiting one of our uh, students, one of the cohorts in Missouri, and, and there was one of our students who wouldn't look at you, wouldn't always had her head down, he was barely speaking with. Well, now was up giving this incredible PowerPoint presentation on parasites <laughs> uh, for a science class, and it's just, just, just absolutely eloquent uh, and just extraordinary. I think of that, that same group of students uh, during the pandemic, they were very concerned about not missing a beat in classes in the correctional facilities that we can't come in. We figure, what do we do? Well, that's where, lo and behold, Zoom assisted us. They allowed us to put a couple of eyeball cameras and a screen in there, and we continued class. However, having that class like that in this big cavernous room, it was difficult to hear them. So I, I made them come up each time and front and center to the camera to speak. And they told me, we hate this. We hate this. And I said, get over it. I can't hear you from the back of the ringer. And, and they said later, we really appreciated that because it really got us, it really allowed us to become more familiar, conversant, and confident about speaking in public. And I said, aha, you have embraced eloquencia perfecta which is a core piece of Jesuit education. So, you know, much like what's happening on our campuses, the same thing is happening in these correctional facilities, which we call them, you know, it's, it's another campus. And we're allowed to say that because the accrediting agencies and some of these schools have actually gone 
to the facility. And they say, we want to ex- see that campus. Okay, <laughs> you're going to the correctional facility. You go with us to the campus and they say, this is real college work. And it's not watered down. It's, it's not, I mean, a, a professor at Loyola New Orleans, Marcus Conkar, speaks about my students in my sociology class at Rayburn Correctional Facility in Louisiana, I've been with them in those classes, they're every bit as prepared and, and engaged, and I'm not watering down the material. And when I have another professor tell me, do you know how refreshing it is to walk into a class and, and to say, uh, Dr. X or Professor Y, can you explain footnote number four again in that reading? Uh, I, professors, I ask them, do you ever feel unsafe? I just had a recent conversation with her first. She said, no, never. She said, my, my husband is very concerned about that. My daughter said, she said, oh, never. Because when I walk into that, I'm in my world. Uh, and Joanna Caraway speaks about this. It's just, I just love teaching history to these students. So much so she's back for a second tour of duty. She's teaching another class. So, I, you know, it, it truly is transformative. And when professors say, I've been teaching for 25, 30 years, and this reminds me of why I got into teaching. This was one of the most transformative experiences in my life. I hear that repeatedly, right? So, um, again, it's not, it should not be seen as something, oh, look at this great thing we're doing. No, it's transforming all of us. And isn't that the whole purpose, right? I mean, rooted in the principle and foundation to help souls. But in the helping of souls, we help our own and we move towards the end for which we've been created. Uh, that's that's you know. and Jesuits have been involved with with prison work since the beginning. Jerome Nadal said, you know, we should be there. We need to be there. Um, Ignatius Loyola was there. <laughs> We've had several Jesuits who who've been incarcerated, um, and and yeah, just you know everyone from you know Alfred uh, uh, Delp to or Valerio Rupe to we literally had dozens of Jesuits that have, have been in. in incarcerated or doing work with the incarcerated. And I, I just think this is a natural uh, uh, flow, if you will. Uh, the universal apostolic preferences, uh, those four words, right, of the four preferences, to, to show, uh, to, to walk, to accompany, and to collaborate, to show people uh, to God through the spiritual exercise, to walk, uh, with the marginalized, right? to, to accompany our youth in a hopeful future and to collaborate in the care of our environment. I, I believe that this is an expression not just of one, but of all four of those universal apostolic preferences that are, are the uh, part of the focus for the Society of Jesus from since 2019. Hmm. Um, I'm curious about the transformation that happens within the facilities and what you hear from wardens and, and other administrators mm-hmm. about what they notice. And you, you know, you told the story of a going to a recent kind of graduation um, yes, ceremony. Yeah. So yeah, just what what do you hear? Um, what are things you hear from from those folks? Well, I'll say this. Um, people say to me, oh, you're in prison ministry. And I say, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm in prison education. And they look at me and they say, what? I said, no, I'm in prison education. Education, obviously, is an expression of, of, of it's a type of ministry, but I'm in prison education. Um, wardens um, very much open to educational opportunities. Uh, it actually opens the door for us uh, to go in. And through that process of education, they, they recognize all boats rise. Um, 
it 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 has this uh, great impact upon the, the the campus, the community, and environment there. Uh, to give someone, uh, to give all of us a, a desire, right? That that thirst for for knowledge, uh, that unrestricted desire to know, uh, that's transformative. And so, wardens, correctional staff, as they get to know us, they're our biggest champions. Um, when I think of when we first started, uh, we were told very clearly, you know, and they were stressed that they're a place of security. You can't do this. You can't do that. You don't think of this. And and now when I think of where, hey, can we uh, bring in a a group next week to do a filming and uh, to do this? Yes. And that has only happened because of the relationship and because they see how we proceed, how we partner. And, and, and the impact that it's having on all of us. I know that um, you'll, there will be, I'm sure, and there have been studies about what happens, like kind of these longitudinal mm-hmm. studies to see uh, folks who were able to have educational access in while inside and then when they if they were released, what it's, what it's like for them. I don't know, though, if you have, um, beyond the statistics of that, like any stories, um, people who you've heard from or heard about who have kind of come through programs and, and then have um, have been released and returned and, and how it's changed their life yes. when they when they have been released. Do you, do you have any of those types of uh, stories? I do. So statistically, right, just a little bit of college can reduce recidivism by up to 50 percent. Mm. Uh, so that that's just a, a national statistic, mm-hmm. right? Then when we have had folks re- re- released uh, and and have the opportunity to further their education, uh, in some cases, uh, some of the folks who have been released are, are directing programs. I think of Courtney Everett, who uh, finished the program and is now part of the PEP, is the program director at St. Louis University, which has been in its efforts for 15 years. So... Um, like all of us, right, who have gotten into education. Someone touched us and that we've been bitten by the bug and I want to be a part of that. So the, the partnership, the, the, the web of this, 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 this grows. Um, and we really are companions on the journey here. So there are lots of those statistics. And like I said earlier, we have a few folks that, <clears throat> excuse me, from uh, the Chillicothe program who will finish the degree, the associate's degree, but they want to remain involved. What well, would they're going to be come teaching assistants, <laughs> assist others. Uh, so loads of, the, of those stories. Uh, also loads of things that are happening within institutions. To have someone tell me um, that I entered the facility as a white supremacist, and now through this completing the degree, uh, I, I see the world in a different lens, through a different lens. I am and very excited about uh, philosophy, theology. I've seen uh, someone who uh, identified as a total atheist well now has said, well, let me, let me share this story. So we have a, a, a commencement ceremony at Colorado Territorial Facility down in Canyon City. And we had this, this uh, gentleman give his presentation. Um, and it was just, he was the commencement speaker, if you will. He was extraordinary. Uh, when I spoke to him, and asked him about, you know, uh, and in that facility, they have a couple of other institutions. Now, why did you choose Regis University? He said, well, I, I work in the um, license plate department. 20-some states still make, have the, I think, Christ, make license plates. And on this license plate, it read, 
uh, Regis University, men and women, for and with others. He said, I, I had no idea what that meant. I checked into that. And I found out it's a Jesuit education. What's a Jesuit? <laughs> What's that all about? Well, now he's completing his program. Uh, and he said that going from being uh, an agnostic to, or, or for an atheist to an agnostic to now I consider myself a seeker. Hmm. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm just, I can't get enough of this. So, you know, from a license plate to a transformed life, uh, it's happening in, in and out of the other facilities, sure. right? So you, you mentioned that the, the schools who are involved now and part of this network, and I'm sure you're in conversations mm -hmm. with uh, other places. And I'm curious for you, are how interested are Jesuit universities in, in growing this or starting it if they haven't? What are some questions they have for you? What are some of the things that you, you want to make sure you, you tell administrators or people who are sure. thinking ab about this? Just, uh, yeah, what's the future? What's the growth uh, look like in, in this initiative? So, I, yes, I, I think a lot of school administrators, and having been one, I can identify with this. The first question is, is how much is this going to cost? Mm. <laughs> Especially with pressures going on in higher ed. Gosh, it sounds like a nice thing to do. I just don't know that I can take this on this time. Maybe in a couple of years we'll look at it. And, I, and that's why I come back to say, well, what can we do? And I really believe we can do something that's modest, achievable, and sustainable. It'll help you get through this. You know, how to apply for this, how to work with the correctional facility, how to select those students, how to be Pell eligible, if that's a desire, how to, how to offer opportunities to invest in this, um, and to really make this a program that, that according to your size. So we have institutions, small schools, and large institutions are involved with this with, with major endowments, but yet it can be done. Uh, I would say that, you know, the range of, of cost in this would be anywhere from maybe $75,000 a year to $250,000 a year, depending upon the scope of that and the scale of that. Full-time director, part-time director, staff, and all that. But how can you have bikes contribute to that? We can provide, uh, general rule of thumb here, uh, about $1,000 per person per course, which is, you know, you have a cohort of, of, of 20 students and 20 staff, and doing nine credits a year, it, it's, this is doable. This is doable. And, and it's an investment. Why is it an investment? It's an investment because this is a workforce issue. Uh, we have about, right, I guess there's just about three quarters of a million people who are released from prison each year. Well, one year later, 75% are still unemployed. So it's, it's a lost opportunity. I mean, this is, a, this is something with whether you're talking to someone who's on the right or the left or in between politically, all recognize that our current system is not working. It's, it's costing us billions of dollars. Uh, and, and how can we be reinvesting in ourselves so that this works? So I, I think a very, very strong economic argument can be made with this, which appeals to some. A strong argument can be made in justice, which appeals to others. <laughs> An argument can so it's something really we can come together on. Um, the, the, there's some one just staggering statistics about our correctional facilities. Mental health is a big issue for us today. Well, the three largest mental health institutions in our country are jails: Cook County, Los Angeles, 
County and and uh, Rikers in New York. In Rikers Island, and this statistic is a little stale because I don't have the 2022 numbers, but in 2021, the Rikers Island it, it was spending $556,000 a year to incarcerate one person. It, it's just, it's staggering. And we, we continue to build these facilities out of sight, out of mind. We warehouse people. And again, I am not in any way diminishing the crime, but th- this, this is not a, a way, if we're looking at a return for our investment, hmm. education is a way sure. that, that I think we all could agree upon. I'm sure that the work is, is challenging on different days and you're up against some really hard systems. Um, I'm curious for you, you're so such a great storyteller and have these, these people who I'm sure you're carrying with you in your heart all the time, mm-hmm. but are there any, on those days when you are, are, it feels hard or you're talking to someone who's struggling, do you have like any stories or any person or a face who, who comes to you and just giving it, want to give you the chance to share any other uh, sure. stories, um, that you have, uh, with us. Yeah. So, so just in about an hour, I need to be on my way cause I have class today hmm. <laughs> and today, uh, uh, we're in, in Regis University here, we're in three correctional facilities. Each of them is about two hours away from, from the, the campus. So um, going to each one of those and sometimes here, but when they're in one campus or in another one of those facilities, we're broadcasting it in the other. So it's a hybrid type of class. What I really enjoy and what I remind myself is when I'm in one of the facilities, and the conversations that, that, that erupt from those. And at the end of each class, I always ask for, for a takeaway. So what's your takeaway from today's class? And it's just remarkable, right? Just do. So right now I'm in a class, a philosophy class, leading lives that matter. And uh, these students are exceptional. I think back of each time when I'm with them, they say, we want more, we want more. What's next? And, and that's, I guess, what gives me hope is keep saying, don't give up on us. We want more. Uh, and, 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 and golly, what teacher coming in front of a student who performs so well and then says, can I have more? Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and they want more courses. They want more coursework. And, and I'd say to them, we're with you, but our, here's where we are, right? Our, our, our desire is, is, is there. But, but, our, but our resources are, are limited. And so let's grow. Let, let's grow. But make sure that we grow in a way that's sustainable. Mm. You sound like a college president when you keep coming back to those things, which is good. Because <laughs> otherwise you just get too far ahead of yourself. I am curious, as you're talking about being in the class and a philosophy class, are, is there a text you've taught multiple times or one you taught recently where the response was just really uh, surprising to you or, or interesting? Yeah, so so each place I'm being asked to do a different class, like one of the classes I was offered just a funny story. Uh, they said, well, we, we the next course that is, is human geography. And I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> human what? And I had to learn human geography. Well, here I find out it's been being taught in high schools. And in fact, there's an AP course for it. Right? So I, I shared at the beginning of the class to the students, I said, look, I... I've never taught human geography before. This is the text we're using, and 
And these are the readings. And what are we looking at? Looking at language, demographics, geography, movement. And it's a fascinating course. I really enjoyed it and learned lots. But at the beginning of the class, I said to the students, so be patient with me because I've never caught, taught this course before. At the end of the class, the end of the course, student came up and said, Father Kermit, this was a great course. I really enjoyed it. And you know, you're pretty good for not being a teacher. <laughs> 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 so um, right now, the class is using a, a book titled Leading Lives That Matter. Uh, it's by uh, Schwen and Bass uh, Publishing. And it's just a whole series of, of, of essays that, that it's this whole question about um, how do I tell my story? What's my story based upon? You know, who are the influences of my story? I, I began that course by having clippings from the New York Times obituaries over the last couple of weeks mm. and said, okay, pick one of these obituaries. Pick one of these, these obituaries. And of course, anyone who's read them, they're fascinating. Mm. And the New York Times has this whole policy, 155,000 people each day die, mm. and they have to select two or three. Right. So how do they select two or three? They select two or three who have lived a life that made an impact in history, and now their death has made history, right? So that's the starting point. So they get to know about this great opera star or there's this professional athlete or whatever. And then we move from, okay, a, a life of, of, in history, a life to what makes a life of significance? You know, it's that David Brooks speaking about, you know, you spend your life building your uh, resume and then, then you need to spend the second half of your life, if you will, building your legacy. We say that in our college community. Same things. And so the, the understanding that they have of that, and they get that in terms of what does it mean to have a life, uh, leading a life that matters. Mm. And the interchange between the students uh, in the facility and the students there, they, they, there's a great exchange with them. Um, I don't know if that helps yeah, answer no. the question. No, it's just yeah, fascinating. Um, before I, I let you go and hit the road for your your long drive, I, I am curious. Is there anything else we haven't touched on? I know this, there's so much here, and you really are pouring your life into it um, that you would like to share with our listeners. So whether that's a way for them to learn more, to get involved, or just anything else, any other topic we uh, we haven't touched on. I, I guess it's this. You know, when I talk about shared humanity. What's shared humanity? It's that I see you as my sister. I see you as my brother. Um, in our world right now, right, we're, uh, we're dealing once more with, uh, and I take the words from uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who said, you know, our, our history has been marked by sibling rivalry. <laughs> from Cain and Abel to Jacob Esau to, you know, it is, it's true. And now, once again, it's sibling rivalry, whether it's in Ukraine or whether it's in the Middle East, it's... Do I see my? Do I see another as my sister and my brother? I, and I and I believe what this is more. This is most instructive to us, who are given the opportunity, this privilege, uh, to go into what I call a sacred place. And that sounds kind of blasphemous to say how this man is is must be smoking Dutch cleanser to call a correctional facility <laughs> a sacred space. But why is it sacred? It's sacred because therein lies the rest, well, therein lives humanity. And I'm invited to see my sister and my brother. So, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I'm not going to have high expectations for the, for the homework <laughs> expectation as we do on our campus. That's okay. And that's why, you know, 
when that becomes the primary purpose or primary focus, we do start to see one another as my sister and my brother in this journey together. Very grateful for the opportunity. I, sorry if I bloviated too much. No, but, I, uh, I could listen to you talk uh, all day and I really just appreciate your your work in ministry and really too how you um, are so rooted in the kind of Jesuit charism and, and, and ministry and spirituality and that really kind of leads for this direction. Um, so uh, yeah, I just uh, love everything you have to say about it and I wish you all the, the best and I hope that uh, this podcast- One more story. Oh, you got one more. Okay. One more story. Yeah. Please. So this is- I, and this is so I uh, literally, yeah, I just have a box here next to my desk. So one of the students <laughs> said to me two weeks ago, "You know, Father, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a Catholic. I, I had no idea what this Jesuit thing is. But this class, this, I'm like really, and I'm reading up on all this, this Jesuit." He said, "I know I can't become a Jesuit right here, <laughs> but he says, can I learn more about this? You keep speaking about this way of proceeding. Ah, oh, aha." So they don't know this, but at their commencement ceremony in a couple of weeks, they will each be getting a copy of James Martin's A Jesuit Guide to Everything. <laughs> oh, that's terrific. I'll, we'll have to, I'll let him know uh, that that is true. I'm sure he'll <laughs> yes. be touched. Um, no, yeah, no, that, that's great. It really is. Uh, yeah, it's just beautiful stuff. And again, uh, just prayers from me for you and continued, uh, you. hopefully, uh, growth and uh, success and and um, again, the transformational work uh, that you're a part of. So thank you so much for taking the time, Father oh, Tom. Thanks, Phil. It was great to be with you. Blessings upon you. Peace. Be good to yourself. God bless. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C., the show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leach, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, Go and set the world on fire. Mm-hmm.